Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. In our verse-by-verse exposition of the Epistle to the Romans, today we will find ourselves studying Romans chapter 2, verse 4. What the Apostle Paul has essentially said since the beginning of the chapter is that while the Gentile of chapter 1 has no excuse before the Lord, so now do you have no excuse. You, of course, is the Jew. He has no excuse because just like the Gentile, he too has suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness. Indeed, although his truth suppression may not manifest as the more extreme vices, it is still truth suppression nonetheless. His truth suppression is far more subtle and is possibly even covered with outward demonstrations of religion and morality. Yet, as Paul is in the middle of explaining to us, God is a God of truth, and truth is always objective, unchanging, and impartial. This makes anyone who suppresses the truth guilty before the just judge of all the earth. This now begs the question, why? If you are a Jew and you have and know the law of God, if you honestly know that as one who is holy, God must judge sin, then why would you think God would treat your sin in a special way? Why would you think you are in a special category? And to take it one step further, if you are born again, why would you think God's view of sin changes now that you are regenerated? Yes, the genuine believer has moved from condemnation to life, but why would you think the unchanging God has now changed his abhorrence for sin? Regardless of who you are, why would anyone think that they are in a special category? One answer is that because a man has a low view of God and a high view of man, he has taken lightly a weight of glory that is in fact infinite. We will also find an answer in our theme verse, Romans chapter 2 verse 4, but allow me to read the first four verses of chapter 2 to preserve the train of thought. The text says, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now here's verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? The or that begins verse 4 connects what the apostle says here with the prior verse. That is, in verse 3, Paul exposes a false assumption, that the accuser will escape God's judgment when they themselves are guilty. By beginning this verse with or, Paul is not providing an alternative, but exposes another false assumption by asking a rhetorical question. He is in essence asking, do you think you can show contempt for God's mercy and continue in sin when by God's design, his mercy is meant to bring you to repentance? Now, why would a person make such a false assumption in the first place? 
Well, as I alluded to before, the general answer as to why anyone misunderstands the gospel is if they have a low view of God and a high view of man. But here, the specific answer as to why a man may presume against God is because they disregard how good God is. The text says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness? If we look back to the original Greek, the term think lightly literally means to think down on someone or something. The person who thinks down on therefore grossly underestimates true worth. Imagine a man who goes into his backyard and finds what he thinks is an ordinary rock. What does he do? He kicks it around in the dirt and then tosses it away, never to give it a second thought. Why? Because he thinks it's just a rock, common and worthless. Little does he know that the rock is actually a very rare ore and is priceless. If he only had a true estimation of the rock in his midst, then how he interacts with that rock would be radically different. If he actually knew, he'd probably shine it up, display it, and demonstrate a particular reverence for it because of a proper comprehension of value. And, since the text speaks of riches, plural of God, we ought to think of an inexhaustible treasury with endless wealth. The analogy would be best then with thousands and thousands of precious rocks filling up all of a fictional man's backyard. Reason alone nudges this man to revere what's in front of him. Yet it naturally follows that where a reverence of God does not rule, then a contempt and a mockery of God does. A very fitting application of this point is that prosperity in some cases can actually be a curse if the riches and goodness that a man experiences causes him to take the Lord for granted. Fullness of life now therein leads to destruction of life later. Let us not forget that the original audience in our immediate text was the Jew. This remembrance is necessary because Romans 2.4 speaks to anyone who was a member of the nation of Israel and who had a false sense of salvation security despite the fact that they were not living faithfully within the Old Testament covenant. I say all this to say, when Paul indicts his fellow Jews and then asks, Do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness? He was certainly not playing nice. He was levying a sharp, piercing reproach. Douglas Moo persuasively captures the essence of the Apostle's rebuke in his volume on Romans in the New International Commentary on the New Testament. Now be mindful this is a lengthy quote, so bear with me. Quote, the assumption of God's special favor toward his people had already in the Old Testament period become a source of false security for those within Israel who were not living faithfully within the covenant as the preaching of the prophets abundantly indicates. The literature of intertestamental Judaism, while consistently stressing the need for Jews to repent of sin, also tended to highlight Israel's favored position to the extent that its security in God's judgment was virtually unassailable. It is this assumption that Paul, in agreement with the prophets, calls into question. As the passage unfolds, however, we find Paul going beyond the prophets in asserting that Jews are no better off than Gentiles in the judgment. 
this is a radical departure from all Jewish tradition and implies not only a critique of the prevailing understanding of God's covenant with Israel, but also that a new era in salvation history had dawned. End quote. Indeed, a new era in salvation history has dawned because the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is the one who made the gospel good news. Gentile or Jew, Jesus Christ saves sinners. Now the person Paul is speaking to in Romans 2.4 does think lightly about God overall, but their underestimation of value relates to three particular attributes. The riches of his kindness his tolerance, and his patience. We will unpack each of these attributes one by one, but allow me to quote James Montgomery Boyce to give a broad overview of these three terms. He says that God's kindness is his overall posture toward man without any specific relationship to sin. His tolerance speaks to the Lord's goodness in relation to sin's magnitude. Dr. Boyce describes the Lord's patience as goodness in relation to sin's endurance or continuation. In his exposition on the Epistle to the Romans, Robert Haldane essentially expresses the same idea. He says, quote, Goodness imports the benefits which God hath bestowed on the Jews. Forbearance denotes God's bearing with them without immediately executing vengeance, his delaying to punish them. Long-suffering signifies the extent of that forbearance during many ages, end quote. So looking at Romans 2.4, the first attribute we will deal with is kindness. The kindness of God can also be translated as goodness. You don't actually need me to explain to you what the goodness of God is because life already explains that to you. As it says in Matthew 5.45, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God is so good that he gifts life itself. In creation, he sustains even those people who will use their life, time, and resources to spite him. God is kind in the continual ordering of the world and events for good and in the gospel call. Even more, God's goodness manifests in health, families, love, food, clothing, and shelter. All the goodness there is originates in God, James 1.17. God is the chief good, so without Him, good would not exist. And because God is good, He therefore punishes that which is not good, sin. If God did not do that, then He would not be good. He would be soft on sin, making Him bad. A corrupt judge is never good, and a good judge is a just judge. Truly, God is kind and good in his being, but what Paul is specifically talking about in our text is that God is good toward us. In this regard, the kindness of God is useful in that it meets practical needs. God's kindness is no small thing, yet many people take it for granted and run to treat God like a religious valet. The second divine attribute that Romans 2.4 talks about is the tolerance of God. The other way of translating this is the forbearance of God. Now let us be clear. When the Bible speaks of God's tolerance, that does not mean what secular culture regards as tolerance. 
in the modern world, tolerance means I accept who you are and what you are doing, even if you reject God and live a life full of sin. God never condones sin, and His truth is unchanging. So when the text speaks of God's tolerance, it tells us that the Lord, because of His mercy, does not immediately enact His vengeance on sin. His dam of mercy is what holds the increasing waters of His judgment back. Praise be to God that He is tolerant, for if He was not, you and I would both be undone. If God was not forbearing, then when a man thinks a sinful thought, he would be struck down. God's grace is what therefore animates him in delaying punishment, not denying punishment. Of course, although the Apostle Paul is explicitly telling us that God is tolerant, the Bible has shown us that God is tolerant from the very beginning. If we look back to the Garden of Eden, what Adam and Eve both deserved in the very moment of sin was death. But we all know they did not physically die right away. They did not because of the forbearance of God. Only a God that is good is tolerant, for His tolerance always has a good intent. For example, God not only delays punishment, He also provides gospel grace through His Son. Now before we move on to the third and final attribute of God in Romans 2.4, it is important to reflect on how practically the tolerance of God changes how we live. That is, if you do not know God and do not know that He is forbearing, when you look out at the world and see evil, what are you compelled to do? You say things like, if God is real, how could He let this happen? Or, where is God when all this wickedness is going on? These are statements made by someone who is ignorant of who God is, and in such statements, they are turning the temporary tolerance of sin into an accusation against a good God. But when you do know God and are wise to the reality that He is tolerant, now what happens? Now, when you see evil in the world, you are not as quick to say, God, you must do something and judge sin. Why? Because the same God who is demonstrating tolerance to them is also the same God who demonstrates tolerance to you. And where would you and I be if God were not tolerant? I know I would be but dust decades ago. Hence, the next time you see evil in the world and want God to immediately deal with it, ask yourself, what about my sin that has been tolerated and not dealt with yet? Jesus echoes the sentiment that the tolerance of the Lord ought to nudge us towards self-examination and repentance, not other examination and ridicule. In Luke 13, 2-5, Christ is speaking about a recent catastrophe that took the lives of many Galileans. There, Jesus says, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The point is that the fact that God spares any sinner points to His grace. Consequently, rather than asking why bad things happen to good people, the better question to ask is why anything good happens to bad people at all. One answer lies in the goodness and the tolerance of God. 
Let us therefore not be like the ungodly who mock God and take encouragement from his forbearance. Let us therefore not be like the ungodly man who persuades himself that he will always be safe and that he is sufficiently strong to withstand the changing tides of life. Let us instead be like the godly person who is well aware that even though he may fall into the deepest depths, his fall will not be fatal, for our precious Lord will put his mighty hand under him to sustain. Amen. The third divine attribute discussed in Romans 2.4 is the patience of God. The other way of translating this word is the long-suffering of God. This attribute simply points the reality that God patiently bears with sin a long time. He therefore waits before expressing anger, and this is the ultimate example of being long-tempered. No one can ever accuse the Lord of having a short fuse or using force prematurely that arises out of a sudden burst of rage. That is not who God is because He is patient. The reason why God gave Noah more than 100 years to build an ark, even though the world was chock full of evil, is because the Lord is patient. The reason why, despite wanton idolatry, the Israelites lived in the Promised Land for four centuries before being exiled is because God is patient. One of the reasons why a world full of fallen people has been allowed to exist for 2,000 years after the ascension of Christ is because God is patient. As Psalm 103.8 says, the Lord is slow to anger. Thank goodness for that because only the long-suffering of God explains why the world still is. God does not punish sin immediately because of patience. Therefore, to mistake patience for a tacit approval of sin proves no understanding of who God is. In the end, the elect may take comfort in the long-suffering of God because for those who continue in sin, while God demonstrates long-suffering to them, they will eventually have a reckoning for their wickedness. That reckoning will be all the more terrible the longer they took the long-suffering of God for granted. Again, Romans 2.4 says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? So what I hope everyone knows by now are three attributes of God, that he is kind, tolerant, and patient. You may know that, but the unbelieving Jew that Paul was originally addressing did not know that. Paul asks, Or do you think lightly of God, not knowing that his kindness leads to repentance? This not knowing means not understanding the true nature of something. This not knowing does not result from a genuine lack of knowledge, but rather points to a moral failure of willful ignorance. So, while the unbelieving Jew could look at the pagan Gentiles of Romans 1 and not know that they are also likewise guilty, their error continues in purposely misconstruing the goodness of God as a tacit approval of their sin. But specifically, what does the Jew not know? The phrase at the end of Romans 2.4 tells us that God's purpose in His kindness is to stimulate repentance. The reason why we do not think too often of God's tolerance and patience is our insensitivity to sin and our reluctance to turn from it. Spite of God's goodness only leads a man into greater and greater depravity. 
This is understandable because a sinner who loves their sin will hate God's holiness. See Matthew 3.9 and John 8.33. The apostle asks the Jew if he knows that the kindness of God leads him to repentance. What does this word leads mean? Well, we know for certain that God is the agent who is leading to repentance. This means another agent, logic, philosophy, or secularism, do not lead a man to repentance. But this begs the question, if God, by his kindness, is the one leading, then how can every person not come to repentance? After all, who can refuse if God leads? The Greek word that has translated leads is ago. This verb is not used in the sense of forcing or compelling, but rather in the sense of guiding or directing. Think of when you are walking a dog with a leash. The dog walks on its own in that no one is forcing Rover to move. But you lead with a leash in your hand so that the animal cannot stray away from where you are directing them. God leading to repentance, then, never means forcing anyone against their will. Instead, what the whole canon of Scripture tells us is that God causes a man to be willing to serve him so that he does not have to be forced. The same idea is expressed in Ezekiel 33.11, Matthew 23.37, and 2 Peter 3.9. And in 2 Peter 3.9, the Apostle Peter is writing to believers as he makes explicitly clear in the first two verses of that epistle. Hence, when Peter writes, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The all there does not refer to all human beings without exception. Remember that Peter is writing to believers. Thus, all refers to all of God's chosen elect without exception. The point is that what Paul writes in Romans 2.4 agrees precisely with what Peter writes in 2 Peter 3.9, that God effectively leads to repentance all those who are His, and all those who are His are willingly led. In the end, no one enters into the kingdom of heaven kicking and screaming. God causes us to be born again so that we desire His Son and willingly serve Him. John 3.3 But the thinking person may now say, wait a minute, we've already established that Paul is talking to the Jew in Romans 2, the Jew who was hostile to the gospel and is not a believer. And we've also already established that from Romans 1.18 to 3.20 overall, the apostle is not arguing that some people are okay, but that all of humankind is guilty. So then in Romans 2.4, how can Paul ask an unbeliever, Do you not know that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? After all, wouldn't that not make any sense, since unbelievers do not repent? And does this not contradict what Romans 8 says, that before we were born, God foreknew and predestined all those who would be saved? This is a big and an excellent question, and one that I have spent many mind-bending hours thinking about. Consequently, I think the best answer is that, as the overall canon of Scripture tells us, that God only leads to repentance those who are His, those whom He predestined. See also John 6.44 and 79, Romans 8.29-30, 
Ephesians 1, 4-5, and 1 Timothy 4.10. So if Paul is speaking to the non-believing Jew in Romans 2.4, then how do we reconcile when he says, Do you not know that God's kindness leads you to repentance? I think how we reconcile this is that this is one of those peculiar verses in the Bible where what the text superficially seems to say actually suggests the exact opposite. Consequently, I think the thrust of what the Apostle is saying here is, do you, the heart-hardened Jew, do you not know that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hardness of heart, you reject His goodness in your unrepentant disobedience? Under divine guidance, the apostle is asking a question that is actually an accusation, and the accused remains guilty, cognizant that although God's kindness is present, their repentance is absent. God is good in general to all people in that he causes the sun to shine on the elect and the reprobate. He is also good in that he announces the gospel to all men without exception but he is good to his elect in particular by leading them to repentance. Another way of saying this is that God demonstrates common grace to all people, but in an efficacious, repentance-producing way to the elect. The former is resistible, the latter is irresistible. The former is a grace, the latter is the grace that causes men to be saved. In the end, when God leads his own, they will follow. God is never subordinate to man, so figuratively speaking, no creature can break the leash and run along his own path. What the unbeliever will do is refuse to be led by the Lord over and over again, even though the gospel offers pardon and reconciliation. Subsequently, the unbeliever is without excuse because the goodness that was supposed to bring them to repentance, they purposefully and willfully rejected. This makes God's condemnation right and just. As we've already touched upon, the last clause of Romans 2.4 tells us what the kindness of God is designed to do, to lead a man to repentance. But a question remains, what exactly is repentance? For those of you who have recently joined the podcast, I would direct your attention to episodes 2.7a and 2.7b from February 20th and 27th, 2016. There, we discuss the doctrine of repentance at length. What is about to be said is an abbreviation of those two episodes. So what is repentance? It comes from the Greek word metanoia, which literally means change of mind. This change of mind starts with God, so a man thinks of God differently, which then causes us to think of ourselves differently. But more than just an intellectual change, repentance refers to a deep-rooted change in the inner man which begets a spiritual turning away from sin. Hence, repentance means much, much more than saying I'm sorry, which are mere words. Repentance engages the totality of a man where he knows what he has done is wrong based on God's truth. He is convicted to turn in his heart, and he then takes concrete, willful action to turn away from sin. In Mark 1, 14-15, Jesus proclaims to all those who are present, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In Luke 13, 3, Jesus says, Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
In Matthew 3.2, Christ says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in 3.8 says, Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In Acts 3.19, the Apostle Peter says, Therefore repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Clearly, repentance is a crucial idea, and Romans 2 foretells us that the goodness of God leads men to repentance, meaning repentance is in the will of God. Let us be mindful, then, of invoking the love of God while in action indeed despising it with unrepentance. Love without truth is not love, and repentance is based on the truth. Let us therefore never use the goodness of God as a license or an excuse for our own sin. In his book, Systematic Theology, Wayne Grudem defines repentance as, quote, a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake and walk in obedience to Christ, end quote. In other words, the external behavior changes happen because of an inward change of heart. The classic passage on repentance is Psalm 51, where David repents of the sin of adultery with Bathsheba. What is readily evident from reading that text is that out of David's repentant heart emerged a confession of wrongdoing, sorrow, lament, and a turning away from prior ways. The point is that biblical repentance always begins with who you are on the inside, not what you do on the outside, because what you do is never the root of the problem. We sin because we are sinners. This is why God's gospel grace primarily transforms our hearts to therein walk in the light of repentant obedience, not in the self-satisfied disobedience of sin. It therefore logically follows that someone who rejects the gospel is unrepentant because their heart has not been softened but hardened. As the Lord speaks through his prophet in Joel 2, 12-13, he says, Rend your heart and not your garments, meaning what matters is heart transformation, not superficial outward change. Of course, the agent of deep transformative change is the Holy Spirit. He is the one who convicts us of our sins and leads us to repent. See 2 Corinthians 7, 9-10 and John 16, 8. So conduct and behavior are the end results of repentance. This is what the Apostle Paul is essentially saying in Romans 2, 4, that the goodness of God leads to repentance. The badness of men seeks outward change without repentance, which is spiritually poisonous. What I hope you therefore notice is that genuine biblical repentance is only possible for someone who was born again. If someone has a dead heart and a dead mind that desire sin, repentance is impossible. But a regenerated creature with a new heart and a new mind is certainly enabled to turn away from sin. Furthermore, repentance is just but another application of Christ's finished work on the cross. That is, Christ dies and atones for the sins of the elect at Calvary, and then the Holy Spirit applies redemption by means of repentance. Christ has already paid the price for our sins, so the Holy Spirit actualizes that work in our lives so that He can put sin to death and raise us up to new life. Hence, our subsequent response to the work of the Holy Spirit is repentance. 
Now, when talking about repentance, where does faith fit into the picture? Basically, repentance and faith are married. Although we may have two labels for them, in the end, they are inseparably united like two sides of the same coin. It is impossible to have legitimate biblical repentance without faith, and it is impossible to have legitimate biblical faith without repentance. Repentance is a negative response that turns us away from evil things we used to do. Faith is a positive response that enables us to believe and trust in God. If you're not turning toward Christ, then you cannot legitimately turn away from sin. Why is that? Because the Holy Spirit never regenerates people and makes them repentant so that they can just be neutral and simply avoid sin. Similarly, when the Spirit imparts faith in people, that faith engenders a sincere desire to be godly and pursue holiness. Preaching now tends to say, have faith now and repent later. This is not the biblical model. What is also not the biblical model is faith without repentance. This tells us that even if you have an awe-inspiring conversion experience but no subsequent repentance, that experience was a fraud. See Acts 2.28 and 20.21. Additionally, because repentance means turning away from sin, it involves knowing about two things, the destructiveness of sin and the righteousness found in doing God's will and following His commandments. Yet this knowing is only the first part of the process because many people may know what is wrong and what is right, but still choose to do evil. Even demons know that God is God. They just refuse to worship Him and have no motivation to revere the Lord. Knowing simply means you can mentally distinguish between right and wrong, but people are motivated to act based on heart condition. As it says in 2 Corinthians 7, 9-10, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you may not suffer loss in anything through us. For that sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. One of the last things that I wish to leave you with is that repentance is a process, not an event. Life tells us that we can repent of a sin or sins, only to fall back into the same. For example, a man can feel deeply grieved over his addiction to pornography, repent of his sin, turn away from it from a time, and then fall back into the same sin when tempted or in a time of vulnerability. Because we are sinful by nature, nothing in a genuine believer's life is ever perfect. This includes, for example, our prayer, our faith, and our repentance. Because repentance is a process, as we grow and mature in our walk with God, we undergo transformative change step by step. Accordingly, as a person is progressively sanctified, sin has less and less of a power reigning in their life. Hence, the struggle involved in turning away from our inherently sinful nature and toward righteousness and obedience can be very slow, tough, and frustrating. Thankfully for us, God is patient when it comes to our turning away from sin, and Jesus came specifically to call sinners, not the righteous, to repentance. Luke 5.32 
let us all be mindful that the process of repentance is not mediated by what we think is right, but by what God says. Because if, during the course of our journey with God, we change and thus our conscience changes, we cannot place eternal trust in something that is shifting. We can, however, place eternal trust in an unchanging God and His commands. And, in order to turn away from what is bad, we have to know what is good and what God requires of us. So the more we learn about God, His principles, His morals, His laws, and His commandments, the better idea we have about what is truly right and what is wrong. In the end, when we finally appreciate and understand what God desires, then we will develop a heart and thus a desire for repentance that aims to please God. So let us now return to Romans 2.4 and bring everything together. Again, our text says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? So now that we have a fuller understanding of what repentance is, what is the text telling us? That by His kindness, tolerance, and patience, God gives people time and opportunity to turn away from sin. How marvelous is the Lord! He is holy and true, yet by his forbearance and long-suffering, he does not enact quick vengeance, and he endures the sins of many for a long time. Why does he do that? Because he is good and kind, and his desire is that his children come to repentance. I certainly know how stubborn I am and how hard-headed I can be. Praise be to God that his kindness not only gave me time, but also led me to repentance. Unfortunately, many think lightly of the Lord's glorious riches and are not led to repentance, but hardened to more sin. This means that for the person being addressed in Romans 2.4, they stand guilty before the Lord. Why? Because they willfully rejected the good God who showed them kindness, tolerance, and patience. Beloved, let us not be heart-hardened and trample underfoot the grace of God. Let us consider that all men are in desperate need of repentance and that the God of the universe desires for His own to turn away from sin. In fact, God takes sin so seriously that He sent His only begotten Son to pay the penalty for sin and endure the wrath of God for His elect. As we now allow the doctrine of repentance to penetrate our hearts, let us simply sit at the foot of the cross and look upon our beloved Savior. Sin is what murdered the Son of God. My sin is what nailed Jesus to the cross. It should have been me on that cross, but by His grace, Jesus took my place. Praise be to God, for the gospel is a glorious thing. Let us all therefore repent and believe in the gospel and regard highly the riches of the Lord's kindness, tolerance, and patience. Amen. God bless everyone in their Bible studies this week and expect a new episode from what a Christian should know in two weeks. Until then. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.